The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Appreciate you, brains being here today. Let me, before I start teaching, let me just say thank you to those of you who support this ministry. I mean, it is constantly amazing to Kathy and I, the, the finances that come in to support this ministry. 85% of our budget comes in from outside. So basically, we couldn't do what we do without you. So thank you for your generous giving, your support of this ministry. Uh, it just is very encouraging to us. All right, this morning, we're back in our study of 1 John. And let me ask you, just as a test here to get started, okay, what is John's purpose in writing this epistle? <laughs> we have one serious answer, and David, yes, you are correct. <laughs> that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Why are we proclaiming this? So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Yeshua the Christ. Now, so that you may have fellowship with us is what's called a Hina purpose clause with a present active subjunctive. And so the main theme of this epistle is fellowship. But, if you are reading commentaries, you're going to quickly see that most see this epistle as a series of tests to say who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. Alright? I think that's a dangerous view because it easily causes believers to start judging one another. Oh, this is a test of who's a true believer? Oh, they're not a true believer. I saw them do this or heard them say that. And it turns us into Pharisees. I don't think that's the intention at all. This epistle's not a test or not test of who's saved. This epistle is written to believers. But he does give us ways in which we may test our own relationship to Yahweh. Not a test of salvation, but a test of fellowship. Look at 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So believer, if you're walking in darkness, which is used here of sinfulness, You're not in fellowship with God. You may say you're in fellowship, but you're not. Then in 2.6 he says this, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, get this people, if you're not living like Christ, you can't really say you're in fellowship with Yahweh. The verb abides here is the Greek word mano. This is a major theological term for Lazarus. It is used 24 times in this letter, 40 times in the Gospel. The phrase here, abides in Him, is exactly the same as knowing Him in verse 4, which is the same as having fellowship with Him in verse 6. So, if we say we have fellowship, is the same as saying, if we abide. And whoever says he has fellowship in Him, he says, ought to walk in the same way he walks. They're all one in the same experience. Having fellowship with Him, knowing Him, abiding in Him, It's all the same. They're all synonyms for having a close and intimate relationship with Yahweh. 
Now, we just finished the section on Cain the murderer. Verse 12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, look what he says here. Writing to believers, he said, We should not be like Cain. Cain was a murderer. Now, if it was impossible for believers to be like Cain, would he tell them, don't be like Cain? So, I guess we could ask, could a, could a believer be a murderer? You think so? Ever heard about King David? Premeditated murder in order to cover up sin. So Cain serves here as a negative example. This Don't do this, he says, alright? Don't be like Cain. He's of the evil one. Instead of loving his brother, he did the opposite. He brutally murdered his brother. And according to John, he did it because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Let me tell you some people. Evil people will always hate righteousness. Always. Again, we find a stark contrast between righteousness and evil deeds. Just as we've seen before, there's a contrast. John likes to contrast these things. Black and white, light and darkness. Good and evil. Now, since hatred is the opposite of love, we may define it as a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in the disregarding of others' good as one seeks his own interest. The world is motivated by self-interest. That shouldn't be too hard to understand, right? Self-sacrifice, was what love is, to the world is crazy. And that is why the world hates believers who walk as Christ walked, who live in fellowship with God. 1 John 3.13 says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, This, don't be surprised, is a present active imperative with a negative particle, which means stop an action that's already in progress. So he's telling them, stop being surprised about this. Stop being surprised about what? If the world hates you. Now, surprise here has something that's shocking, something that's mysterious, something that's amazing. So don't be amazed. Don't be shocked when the world hates you. Do any of you remember after you first became a Christian and you started trying to really live for Christ and people were getting mad at you for that? You ever had that experience? I mean, getting mad at you. And you were kind of confused, like, what did I do? This is what you did. You were righteous. The world does not like righteousness. Now, he says that, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Most translations have if here. Instead of that. Matter of fact, this is the only translation I found, the ESV, that does have that. But it's a first class conditional sentence which is assumed to be true from the author's perspective. So this is a good translation, that. It doesn't have any question in here. He's not saying if the world hates you, the world's going to hate you. He says, but don't be surprised that it does. The word hate is from the Greek word miso, and it means hatred to detest to persecute. And in the context of 1 John, who or what is the world? 
cosmos here. This word cosmos occurs 23 times in 1 John, and its meaning varies according to the context that he uses it in. But here and in several other places, it denotes the unbelieving world, that is, people who are opposed to God, people who are opposed to believers who are under the power of the evil one. Now, it's very possible that by world, John is targeting those who had left the church and were promoting false teaching about the person and work of Christ. Remember back in 2.19, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Referring to the cessationists, he calls them the Antichrist. And speaking of the secessionists, John writes in 4.5, they are from the world. These secessionists, these people who hate you, they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. See, in breaking fellowship with the Johannian church and separating themselves from the community, they had manifest what the author calls a hatred to the believers. But what John says here is much broader than just the secessionists of John's day. Christians who are living in fellowship with Yahweh are to the people of the world as Abel was to Cain. If we live righteously, the world will hate us because it just blows the curve for them, okay? It bothers them. And people, you got to understand that if you're living righteously, the world is going to hate you. The world is going to persecute you. So I guess we could say if you're not experiencing any persecution, any trouble from the world, what's that tell you? Am I living righteously or not? I mean, if you look like the world, why would they bother persecuting you or hating you? All through the history of the Christian church, believers have been hated. Believers have been persecuted. Even today, there are more Christians being persecuted for the cause of Yeshua than ever in history. Tens of thousands dying all over the world under the hateful, murderous people who are the children of the devil. They just can't stand Christians. And that Christians are subject to the world's hatred is the recognition that hatred is the natural response of a sinful world towards righteousness. If you're not living righteous, if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not in fellowship with Christ, then the world's not going to hate you. Hatred of the world for believers is a familiar theme in the Gospel of John. Yeshua taught His disciples, He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Right? So you're in good company, because they hated Yeshua. He goes on to say in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. So Yeshua warned His disciples of the world's hatred, just as John is doing in our text. Now, if we back up uh, a verse in John 15, Yeshua says this, These things I command you, so that you will love one another. In other words, I, here's what I want from you people. I want you people to love one another. And then He says this, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. And what I want you to notice here is the contrast between verse 17 and 18. Love one another, the world hates you. Now in this text, in John 15, 18-25, Yeshua is telling His disciples that in their service to Him, they can expect hatred, rejection, persecution. In contrast to Yeshua's love for His disciples, is the world's hatred of them. So Christ loves them. The world hates them. Yeshua turns from the subject of love 
in God's community to that of hatred in the world. And in our text, John does the same thing, but we reverse order. He talks about the world's hatred towards believers, and then he talks about the subject of love in the community of God. Listen, believers, because the world hates us, we need a place to go where people love us. And that's the church of God. We don't need to experience hatred in the church, okay? We can get that outside. Colin Krauss writes this, This association of the command to love with a warning about the world's hatred may perhaps be explained by the author's dependence on the fourth gospel at this point in his letter. In the Last Supper discourses, Yeshua teaching concerning the need to love one another is followed immediately by teaching that his disciples would experience hatred from the world. In the context of John 15, these two ideas function as part of Yeshua's preparation of his disciples for the time following his imminent departure to the Father. They will need to adhere to one another in mutual love and be prepared to face hostility from some unbelieving Jews. So he's saying you guys need, you know, you need to be loving one another, caring for one another because the world out there is not going to love you. They're going to hate you. Because the world hates you, our love for each other is a needed oasis in the world of hate. We shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us, but we should be surprised when it comes from within the body of Christ. That should surprise us, because it's not supposed to happen. Okay? Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Okay, now this is a difficult verse. Let's see if we can try to figure it out in the context here. Just like his Lord, John goes from hatred to love. The world hates, he says, but the church is to love. Now notice that John doesn't say, we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You say, well, he does say that. I read it there. Yeah, but there's something in front of it, okay? He says, we know that we've passed out of death. Now, if he didn't say we know, and if he just said we passed out of life into death, that would be salvation by works. Hey, we're nowhere Christian because we love. That's not what he's saying at all here. He's saying, we know. We know this has happened. And we're going to get into that, all right? But let, first let me show you, this phrase, we have passed out of death into life, appears one other time. And that's in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now here it is clear that eternal life comes from hearing and believing Christ's Word. That's what he says. Whoever hears, believes, has eternal life. It's as simple as that, people. I'll tell you, the world's trying to complicate the Gospel today with adding so many things. This is it. You hear the Word, you believe the Word, you have eternal life. You've passed from death to life. Now, the idea of passing from death to life is synonymous with escaping condemnation, of attaining eternal life. Now, in our text... It says we have passed out of death into life. tells us that John assumes the doctrine of original sin. Okay, you with me there? Where were we? We were in death. We were dead. People, all people, every people start in this life dead. Okay, you're born dead spiritually. 
All right, it's not something, you know, I was really a good person and somewhere along the line I got to be four and I just kind of messed up. I started lying to my mom all the time. No, you lie because you're a sinner. Boy, if you're a parent, you know that's true, okay? Because you're wondering, that kid was such a good kid, he must be going to lying school at night. Because where did he learn to do this stuff, you know? Perfect kid, but watch how quick they'll lie if they can save their own skin. It's amazing. You know why? Because they're depraved. They're born dead. Separated from God. Look at Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead, Paul says. You're dead. Not physically, but spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Then he says this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God did something. He made us alive together with Christ. In or, Amen. In order to pass out of death, Into life, man needs to be born from above. That's a work of God. Our natural spiritual state before we're converted is death. Everybody is dead, needs life. Look at Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us, referring to Christ, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've been delivered. We've been transferred. Both these words relate to the themes of the Tanakh that we see there going on with Israel. Delivered is from the Greek word roumai, which is also an aorist and suggests that which is an accomplished event. We've been delivered. It's happened. We're delivered at a point in time in the past. That's our conversion. This deliverance is absolutely finished. You understand it's an act and not a process. It's not like, yeah, I'm working on getting saved. No, you're not working on it. You're either saved or you're not, okay? There's no progress in this rescue. It's an event. The Greek word carries the idea of rescue. This is a spiritual rescue, which is the antitype of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Christ has delivered us out of death into life. People, salvation is a work of God. That's it, done. Okay, Not a work of God that you cooperate in, it's a work of God. You say, yes, I believe. You're right, because He gave you faith. And when He gives you faith, you're going to believe. Okay? That's how it works. Now, the word past here in verse 14 is metabino. And this verb essentially means to transfer from one place to another. That's what He said in Colossians. He's delivered us. He's transferred us. That's what passed here. We passed out of death. We transferred from one place to another. We were in death. We've moved into life. In John 13, 1, this word is used to refer to Yeshua's departure from the world as He returns to the Father. So here it's used figuratively to refer to the believer's transfer from a state of spiritual death to the state of spiritual life. Now the use of the perfect tense of metabino, both here and in John 5, 24, indicates that for the author... This transfer is viewed as a past action for his readers. It's already happened. He views them as Christians, although it has results that persist in the time. In other words, something that happened in the past that's still true today. Okay? You move from one realm to the other. You are now in the spiritual realm. Now, let's just talk about this verse for a second. Could you just come along and you read this? Say, we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Most people see this verse as giving evidence of personal salvation. Okay? How do you know you're saved? Because I love. Alright? I'm loving people. Alright? Let me just ask you, would you like to be judged on your love for other believers? 
But most people, that's how they see this. One commentator writes this. But the person who refuses to love fellow believers remains in a state of spiritual death. Such a person is surely an unbeliever. So if you don't love, you're an unbeliever. Another writer says this. What John is saying is that if you have a lack of love towards your brothers, it proves an absence of eternal life. Huh. Hope they don't catch us at the wrong moment, huh? You're still dead, he says. Do you have brotherly love? If you don't, if you hate your brother, it's a sure sign that you lack eternal life. Hmm. Now, does this mean that we have assurance of salvation as long as we're loving? Are we always loving? And wait a second, before you answer that, let me tell you what John's definition is. We're going to get to it in a minute. But John's definition of love is sacrificially laying down our lives for others. He's not saying you need to be nice to one another. You need to do this. You need, you know, you need to have warm feelings towards one another. No, he's saying you got to lay down your lives for one another. So if we're not laying down our lives for one another, then we're not Christians. Is what so many of these people are saying. All right. I think that's ridiculous. I think that what John is saying here is that we can recognize our experience of love as an experience of life rather than death. In other words, if you love, if you're loving your brother, that experience comes from the life of God. It doesn't come from death. So when you're really loving, hey, that's an, that's an act of God. Because love people, biblical love is supernatural. First John 4, 7 says, love is from God. That's how you love like that. It comes from God. And so when you see that kind of love, you're saying, this is coming from life. I'm alive. It's produced by Yahweh in the life of an abiding believer. This text is not saying that we can be sure of our salvation because we love other Christians. Please understand this. I harp on this a lot, I know, but this is really important. Assurance of salvation is based on the testimony of God, not your life, not your works, not the things you produce. Look at 1 John 5. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Everybody agree with that? You, we believe other men, don't we? we? Someone tells us something, we believe it. Well, if you believe that, God's, God's word is better, is, is greater. This is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe has made God a liar. So the issue here is do you either believe or you don't. Because He has not believed in the testimony of God, has born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he says this, I write these things to you who believe, the people who are believing, in the name of the Son of God. Why? So you'll know you have eternal life. I'm writing, if you believe, you know. Why? Because what is believing? Believing, You're believing what? You're believing the testimony of God. God said, if you trust me, I'll give you eternal life. So you say, I trust Him. So I have eternal life. Listen, people. If you get, if you're getting your assurance from your works, you're going to be not real happy most of the time. Okay? 
Because if you're getting your works from, I mean, if you're getting your assurance from your works, then your eyes are really being taken off the sufficiency of Christ. And your eyes are putting on yourself. Well, I'm saved today because I did a good job. Wow. That would be a rough life to live, okay? Because you're going to have bad days and you're going to know you have days that you're not doing what you should do. And, you know, you don't want your eyes on yourself. Our assurance is to be based on God's Word. His promise that He would give eternal life to all who believe in Him. Assurance does not come from works. And if it does, you're looking at the wrong place. Your assurance is a false assurance because you're trusting yourself. Alright? We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. This is a present active indicative. Love is to be a major characteristic of the family of God because it's a characteristic of God Himself. We're children of God. We're image bearers. We should look like God. Now, one commentator writes this. A love for the people of God is a basic sign of being born again. If this love is not evident in our lives, our salvation can be questioned. If it's present, it gives us assurance. Again, they want to put the emphasis on you, how you live. You don't live quite right. It's about love. So what is love? Love is self-sacrificing for the needs of others. And so they look at you and they're like, hmm, I didn't see them do anything. I haven't seen any of you this morning self-sacrifice your life for somebody else. I hadn't seen it this morning. So when do you, is this over a, a long period of time that you have to you know, balance it all out? Did they do more than they did? You know, you see how confusing this gets? But people want to put the emphasis on us. Because they don't, because they want to say, if they're not living to this standard, then I don't think they're a Christian. Because I'm living to that standard, and I don't want people to get in that are doing less than me. That's, just, that's the bottom line. And listen, believer, if what this guy is saying is true, most Christians that I know should doubt their salvation. Including me. <laughs> I should be doubting my salvation. Remember, love is not a feeling. It's a sacrificial laying down our lives. Now, according to Yeshua, what is love a proof of? I mean, if you're truly living, abiding life and you're loving, what does that prove? What? Okay, it does. It proves you're in fellowship with God. It proves you're abiding. It proves you're a disciple. This is what the Lord said. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. How will they know? If you love one another. He never said that everyone will know you're a believer if you love everybody. He never said that. Because discipleship is distinct from believing. Now, boy, I know that people don't believe this. Most people think being a Christian, being a disciple, they're just synonymous terms. But in John 15, verse 3, the Lord says, now you're clean to the word I've spoken to you. And then He says this, abide in me. Well, so he's telling believers, abide in me. Because it's something believers are called to do. Because we become a believer by faith in Christ. We become a disciple by following Him, by abiding in Him, by loving. All believers are called to abide. Most don't. Whoever does not love abides in death. See, love is an experience of life. But to not love is an experience of death. And the person who does not love is not abiding in Christ who is life. 
Now listen, like I said earlier, I know this is a difficult verse. But I think if you want to make this an issue of salvation, it's you're just going down the wrong road. But let me say this, no matter what side of the lordship aisle you're on, I think we can all agree that what John is saying here is love is really important for the people of God, okay? So if you think this gives you assurance, I don't agree, but listen, the bottom line is this is important. Love is extremely important. He goes on to say, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, that sounds strong, doesn't it? The dictionary tells us that hate is a feeling of extreme hostility or extreme dislike of another. I'm sure you all know the feeling of hate, don't we? Maybe some of you are real spiritual. You never experienced that feeling before. You never hated anybody. This aversion to someone. It's a sense of extreme hostility toward another. Now, we can express it in different ways. It can be active. And then we indulge in malicious talk or injurious actions toward another. But hate can also be expressed passively and still be hate. It can be expressed by indifference, by coldness, isolation, exclusion, unconcern for another. Someone has said that indifference is the cruelest form of hate. Just don't even care. <laughs> don't even care. Hatred of other Christians is a sure sign that one is not abiding in Christ. Obviously, genuine Christians have hated other Christians. See, if the Bible taught that feelings of hatred were a sign of an unsaved condition, then virtually no one, again, is a Christian. Because we've all experienced this. Now look at the end of this verse. Eternal life abiding in Christ. No murder has eternal life. In this epistle, eternal life is promised to those who believe in Him. 2.25 It's found in Christ the Son, 5.11, who is the true God in eternal life, 5.20. This life was with the Father from the beginning and appeared in the person of Yeshua to eyewitnesses, 1-2. Those who believe in Christ may know they have eternal life, 5-13, we just read that one, because they have the Son. And those who have the Son have eternal life, 5-12. As far as John is concerned, eternal life is not an unending extension of life as we know it. Rather, it is having the Son, Yeshua the Christ. Eternal life is all tied up in Him. He is the true God in eternal life. Now, the NIV paraphrase, the nearly inspired version, says this here, which I just, you know, this is misleading. This is, this is wrong on several levels because you see what they've done there? You see the difference? No murder has eternal life abiding in Him. The NIV says no murder has eternal life in Him. Is there a difference? Well, they've taken the word mano out of the text. Oh, we don't like, what's that word doing in there? Get that word out. Take that word out. How, how, what gives translators a right to just take this word out of the text? Because they're biased. No, that doesn't fit with what we believe. See, the key to the statement that concludes this verse, abiding in him, John is talking, no Christian has eternal life if they're not abiding, is what he's saying. No murder has eternal life abiding in him. To have eternal life abiding in you is to have Christ abiding in you. No one walking in fellowship with God is going to commit murder. Some believers have committed murder, but they're not abiding in Christ. When you abide in Christ, that's not going to happen because you're in fellowship. You're in communion. You're abiding. 
You don't do that. But if you take the word abiding out, then it's just simple. No murder is eternal life. Boom. Oh, so now it's a whole saying a whole different thing. Look at John 15, 5. Yeshua says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, there's our word mano again. If you abide in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, when you're abiding in Christ, you can do whatever God's called you to do because you have the power from Him. Now, bearing fruit here, he says, if you abide, you bear fruit. What is love? The fruit of the Spirit is love. So if you're abiding in Him, you can love. But if you're not abiding, you're not going to love. It's produced, love is produced in those who are abiding in Christ. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John is echoing what the Lord Yeshua had already taught in Matthew's Gospel at the Sermon on the Mount, where Yeshua associates anger with murder. Yeshua is looking at the command, you shall not murder, and He's giving the background for it. See, if you're going to obey this command, it's not enough simply to say, I never killed anybody. The condition of your heart is what's being examined before God. You can be a murderer in your heart and never carry that out in your deeds. But, if truth be told, you would be really glad that that person died and left this earth. Okay? That's what I want. That's what I desire. God, give them some dreaded disease and kill them. Of course, we don't ask God for that because we know that would not be right. We're told to love our enemies. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So, what he's trying to do here, he said, don't be like Cain. Cain was a murderer. He... Look what happened with him. He kills his brother. Don't you be like him. I don't want you to be a murderer. The word murderer here in our text is the Greek word anthropoktonos. The only other occurrence of this word in the New Testament is in John 8.44. Anybody know what that verse says? John 8.44. should be a familiar verse. Okay, let's go there. Yeshua is talking to the Jews. You belong to your father the devil. And you want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. I think it's interesting that he's saying everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And he goes back and the only other time that word is used is for Satan who was a murderer. This refers to the devil's role in bringing death to Adam and Eve. and Even death to Cain. Or even the involvement of Cain killing his brother Abel. To hate a brother is to be like Cain, it's to be like the devil who was evil. We're to be like Christ, not like Cain. Well, what does true Christian love look like? That's important. Okay, because he's talking about the importance of love. So what is it, John? I mean, just, you know, lay it out. Well, 1 Corinthians does a pretty good job laying it out. You know, love is patient, love is kind. Here's some attributes you'll see of love, but here's what John says. By this, we know love. Here's how we know it. That He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This literally reads, By this we have experientially come to know love, that the One laid down His life for us. For John, this act of selfless sacrifice on Yeshua's part becomes the very standard by which Christian love is measured. It is also the standard of love expected between believers in the Christian community to which John's writing. This is what I want from you. This I want you to love one another like Christ. 
And when John speaks of Christ laying down his life for us, he's almost certainly picking up the teaching that Yeshua gave us in the fourth gospel. There Yeshua speaks of himself as the good shepherd, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's not laying down his life as, you know, look what I'm doing, follow me. He's laying down his life for the sheep in our place. John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, people, this is the opposite of taking another person's life, what Cain did. Cain took a life, Yeshua gives his life. The cross is the supreme demonstration of what real love, God's love, is. You know, there's hardly a passage in the New Testament that speaks of God's love that doesn't also speak of the cross. Okay, because that is love. That's what love is. And ever you doubt the love of God, just look to Calvary. That's His demonstration of love for you. John 3.16, we all know this verse, right? For God so loved the world, what? But he just had this warm feeling for Him. He got tingly when He thought about Him. No! He loved and He gave. Because He loved. He gave that whosoever believes Him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at Romans 5.8. God shows His love for us. How does He show it? By giving us everything we ever want. No. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how He demonstrated love. He died for us, for the ungodly. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives. I wish you'd stop there. I mean, he goes on to say, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow, so what's he saying? And he gave Himself up for her. That's how husbands love his wife. We're willing to give up for, give themselves up for their wives. John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? Okay, it's the alleviation of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. Christ offered the sacrifice, removed the wrath of God for all He offered that sacrifice for. So if you want to know what God's love is like, look at Yeshua, the righteous one who willingly sacrificed Himself on behalf of the ungodly. There's a real sense in which we would not know what the love of God is all about if it wasn't for the work of Christ on the cross. The love of God is epitomized in Christ, perfected in Christ, it's the greatest standard and expression and measure of that love is Calvary. Calvary. And so he goes from this great illustration in Christ to the application. And the application is an obligation to everyone who names the name of Christ. He says this, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Yeshua laid his down his life once, but he's saying we ought to lay down our lives Repeatedly. Well, how do we do that? In self-sacrificing love. As the tense of the Greek here suggests. Now, this sounds like what Paul said to the Philippians, okay? Look, look at this. Philippians, this is an incredible chapter in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2. 
Paul is telling the believers, have this mind, this attitude, this thought process in yourselves, which is also in Christ Yeshua. Okay? So he's telling them, I want you to have the same attitude, the same thinking of self-sacrificing humility that Christ had. And then he says this, speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. That's the doctrine of the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ. He left heaven and become a man by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's saying that we should love to the extent that we are willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. This means that we should regard the lives of others as more significant than our own. I read that somewhere. Oh, it was earlier in Philippians, chapter 2. These are two verses you kind of wish weren't in the Bible. Okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's easy, right? Now listen, I know that there are some people in your life that you count more significant than yourself. You look at them and you think, yes, they're way more better. They're way better than me. But I also know there's people on the other side of that line where you're at that you don't. But he's saying we're to count others more significant. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. That's what we pretty much do. But also to the interests of others. That's Christian love. You know, we today have love so misunderstood. You know, people will come in here, visitors, and they'll go, oh, the church is so loving. What they mean is, you guys are really friendly. That's what they mean. No one's laying down their lives when they come in here for them. They're just saying, you're welcoming, you're friendly, you're not. That's nice, because love is kind. That is nice, but, you know, it's not what he's talking about here. This laying down our lives for the brothers happened in the early church. Literally. They laid down their lives for one another. Romans 16, you find that Prisca and Aquila put their neck on the line for Paul. And he counted it as a great act of love and he commends them for it. Romans 16, 3 and 4. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Yeshua, who risked their necks for my life. They put their life at risk for Paul. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That's pretty amazing. While self-preservation is the first law of physical life, isn't it? Physical life is all about, we got to preserve the life. you got to do everything that preserves your life. That's the first law of physical life. Self-sacrifice is the first law of the spiritual life. Now, someone might be thinking, I'd laid my life down for a fellow Christian if I ever had the chance. How many of us ever had that chance like that? Most of us in this country will never have the chance to lay down our lives, so to speak, for someone else. So John goes on to say this. But, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The word goods here, people, is the Greek word bios. And this is very significant, okay? Because according to Strong's, bios means life. 
If anyone has the world's life, what does he mean by that? Well, it's the present state of existence. And by implication, it's the means to live. If you have the means to be alive, okay, and you do because you are, right? So anyone has the world's means to be alive, bios, good to be alive, and you see your brother in need, what are you supposed to do? Well, if you close up your heart, another I have the means to stay alive. He doesn't, and too bad. Keep him what I got. So the word here refers to resources needed to maintain life. All right, it's not talking about if you got way extra stuff you don't need in your barns out back. Give some to some. No, that's not what he's saying. If you have the means to stay alive. If you have the resources to stay alive, the substance, the material goods, the property to stay alive, you need to share that. Now, the word heart here, you close up your heart. The word here is splagnon, which means intestines, gut. Why would he say that? See, the bowels, the intestines were understood in the ancient world to be the seat of affections. The way we use the word heart today. You know, we use the word heart for feeling. The Bible doesn't. The Bible uses heart for thinking. It uses splachnon, bowels, for feeling. And I think we understand that, right? You get really upset, you feel in your gut. You get those feelings in your gut. That's the splachnon. You're shutting up your bowels to this person. Notice what the Lord told the Israelites. If anyone of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut up your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever it may be. He's got a need, help him out. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to Yahweh against you, and you'd be guilty of sin. See, in this passage, the Israelites are being cautioned against allowing a calculating means to cause them to close their hearts. I'm not going to give to them. See, they were to be generous and lend to the poor, even in the seventh year. See, in the seventh year, all debts were cleared. Well, no, it's too close to the seventh. I can't give you now. Don't do that, he says. And John, you know, all this that John is saying here is simply repeating what he said in 2.6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Be like Christ is what he's saying. That's what Christ does. He loves. He loved selflessly. He gave his life for others. If we're abiding in him, we're going to be loving like he did. This love is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, just in case you think that this is a little bit too difficult for humans, okay? Sure, Christ did this, but he was God. What about us? Well, let me give you a human example to ruin your curve, okay? Philippians 2, a man named Epaphrodites. Paul says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites. He's sending Epaphrodites to the Philippians, okay? My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and the minister to my needs. Epaphrodites was from Philippi, but he was out helping Paul, ministering to Paul when he was in jail. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed. Epaphrodite is distressed. Why is he distressed? Because you heard that he was ill. You get what that's saying? 
What's he stressed about? Oh, you guys heard that he was ill, and now he's distressed because he doesn't want you worrying about him. So you're going to be all upset because, oh, poor Pastor. No, I don't want you to worry about me. I don't want you to stress over me. Paul says, indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only him, but me also. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. So, okay, Epaphroditus is close to death, but God spares his life. He says, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious to receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men. Men like Epaphroditus. He says, honor them. Why? For he nearly died for the work of Christ. See, what almost killed him? Serving Christ. Helping others. He was ministering to Paul so Paul could minister to others. And he did it almost to the point of death, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In other words, you Philippians couldn't help me. He's here helping me. He risked his life doing it. Epaphroditus loved the Philippians whom he was representing. And he loved Paul to whom he was ministering so much that he almost lost his life in sacrificial service. That reminds you of a lot of Christians you know? Serving the Lord to the point of almost killing them. When someone does that, you know what we do? Hey, slow down a little. Relax, you don't need to be so full out bore, you know, going all out. No. He says, honor these men. They're sacrificing their lives for others. All right. He says, how does God's love abide in him? Now here, the love of God here, it could, this love, God's love could mean love for God. If so, it would be in line with what John said, says later. If anyone says, I love God, you hate his brother, he's a liar. But alternatively, it could mean the love that comes from God. And then the verse would mean that they, that they say that love coming from God is not found in a person who shows no pity to those in need. And I don't care which way you take it. Both of them are true. All right. People want to argue about that. It's kind of silly. And he closes this section by saying, little children, affectionate term that John used for believers. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, if you have the capability to meet a brother's needs, and you do nothing to meet those needs, then how can you say you love that brother? How does the love of God abide in you? He's saying words are produced by the tongue, and the righteous deeds which the believer are supposed to do to one another, the love one another, are produced by truth. When you know the truth, when you know what love is, that's that's what you're supposed to do. Now, this sounds a lot like James 2, where James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Okay, here's the problem. <laughs> they, they don't have any food. They're struggling. They don't have the right clothes on, you know. And you go to them and say, You know, go in peace. Go. Go. Get away from me. Go in peace and be warm and filled. I'm not going to help you, but I hope somebody warms you and fills you. Without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? See, our love for others needs to be in deed and it needs to be in truth. Love is a verb. Love is action. It's something we do. You know, the early church was renowned for their love. The emperor Hadrian of Rome in the early 2nd century called a man... Aristides, 
to the palace to give. He said, I want you to give me a description of what Christians are really like. I hear about these Christians. Tell me about them. And here's what Aristides said. He said, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. wonder why. All through the Old Testament, God tells them to take care of widows and orphans. They say orphan, they save orphans from those who would hurt them. See, in that culture, there was no, you know, government, social security, all these different things to help out widows and orphans. They were just on their own. And so he's saying, this is a category of, they're helpless. You need to look out for them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home. And are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Holy Spirit of God. Well, what a great description to give. This is what Christians... You know, ask today, what do you think most people's description of a Christian would be? I would say, if you ask the world, the most common answer you're going to get, number one on the board of, you know, yeah. They're self-righteous hypocrites. That's not what the early church thought. The early Christians were renowned for their love. Again, the Emperor Julian the Apostate complained during his short reign from A.D. 361 to 363 that he says this, the impious Galileans, and that's another name for Christian, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. People, if we live like this today, our Christianity, just like the early church, would have an impact on the world in which we live. I think people would be asking us questions about our God if we represented our God the way these early Christians did. They'd want to know. They'd have good things to say about us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is hard-hitting and convicting. And things that we don't even want to hear, Lord. But I thank you for our forefathers, our brothers and sisters who lived in the first century, who literally died for each other, who literally sacrificed all to minister to one another. Father, we're in such a different environment, such a different culture. I pray that we wouldn't lose the importance of love. Help us to realize, Father, we are obligated to love one another because you have loved us. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Okay. Let me just ask a quick question before we go on here to see how well you all retain what I said here. Anybody feel real good about their salvation because of the life they live? <laughs> Are you getting your assurance from your works? I hope not. Okay. <laughs> all right. Anthony. Uh, I don't know if it's too part or not, but um, I know we have to keep things... As far as the body in Christ and our fellowship with Him, knowing the definition of that. Okay, and when we read Scripture, of course we have to keep the context of what it's saying. But when I hear the you say the word led to the forest and things of that matter, and do you not only not just think of uh, tangible stuff like food and stuff and stay hungry, but like giving a verse two or you know a, a, a quick word or encouragement word 
for fellowshipping with Christ sure. along with that. I think, you know, yes, it's not just giving financial. We need to do that to one another. Yeah. But if your brother has no food to eat and you just, you know, let me pray for you. Here's a good scripture. He's like, I don't really care about scripture. I want something to eat. Okay, so what you do is you give him something to eat and then you share the scripture with him, okay? And, you know, you you get that opportunity around here all the time. There's all kinds of people. You can go panhandlers all over the place, you know. And I always invite those people to, to, for a meal, and usually I get turned down, okay. Or you see the sign, I'll work for food. No, they won't. Because I've asked, I got a job. Come on. <laughs> Not interested. Not interested, okay. Gary? That um, goes along with the adage that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right. Um, but your first part of the message really explained um, a lot that you expound on, but why liberals in general and the world in general hates Christians. And particularly in the rest of the world, they're persecuting and killing them, trying to wipe them out because they don't like their righteousness. And that's what it, that's what the verse tells us. Why did he hate his brother? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And evil hates righteousness. And maybe it explains why the church is not persecuted too much in this country. Well, I think it does says a lot to why the church is not persecuted in our country. <laughs> but they're fine. All right, I, I just received the text from Mark in uh, Montana. I don't know if I can even read this. Uh, <laughs> Mark says, even though we have never been there, we do not feel like outsiders. The blessing that our family receives from the Berean ministry is priceless. We give thanks for the Berean ministry. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Um, you know, that's a real encouragement to us to know that we are able to minister to people outside this building. You know, that, that is very encouraging to me. Stan? Sacrificing not all, but a lot of Christian missionaries. Uh, I know I was reading uh, when I was probably a younger baby Christian with Christian Missionary Alliance's single lady, and you know she always wanted to be married, and here she was in Vietnam, and all the GIs were there, so she was recounting that. But unfortunately, the Lord took her home because she was captured by Vietnamese and. I think she died of dysentery or something. They gave her like grass soup or something. So. Yeah, there's no doubt the missionaries, when they go into a foreign field that they know is, you know, hostile, they're putting their life on the line to try to share the gospel. You know? Gary? The, uh, the other thing is the uh, self-sacrificing. I think a lot of times, at least for me, the, the sacrificing that comes to mind is taking a bullet or whatever, giving up my life. Right. But it's not just that. It's just giving up my desires, my what my hopes, what I want to do. I don't want to go down to the to the uh, union mission or whatever. I want to go and watch football or something. I don't want to go down there and help serve the poor and homeless or, or anything like that. I want what I want. I want to do what pleases me. I don't want to go give yeah. up myself. My desire is to take care of somebody else, provide for them. And that's why John says it's not just about laying down your life. It's about do you have what it takes to stay alive and your brother doesn't? 
See, you're sacrificing your life if you're giving of what it keeps to keep you alive and you're sharing that with someone who doesn't have that means. And again, in our culture, we have an abundance, okay? A crazy abundance. I mean, most people from the third world would come over here and they just, they, they are blown away by what they see. You know, and I told Gennady, don't judge me. I was born here. And he said, no, no, no judgment. I'm not judging you. He's just marveling at what's here. He couldn't wrap his head around what we have. I wonder what you said was a good example. Um, you know, the widow's money, giving all that she had to live on as opposed to out of their surplus. Right. That's the heart of giving. It's, you know, you're, well, I don't have any extra. It's not about giving extra. It's about helping someone because you have what you, what you need to stay alive. So it's important for us to miss an opportunity, whether it's a drive-by situation or, you know, you know, you're going to pick up the grandbaby from school and it's almost cold and you see someone in need. Is it up, is our responsibility to fall on our knees to God and say, forgive me, Lord, because who knows if that was an opportunity for him to have us be at that particular time and place? All right, good question, Anthony, or good statement. I mean, you know, so often we see people around here with signs need work, need help, whatever. Um, I don't know. I guess if I saw someone that I, I, like, they're broken down and they need, yes, I would stop and help. But these people, you just get the idea that they're scamming you. And I've been dealing with people like that for a long, long time. You know, we had a lady come in here and she sat in the back and cried during the service. And afterwards, what's, you know, I'm dying of cancer. And my boyfriend just left me and I'm all alone. I got nothing, you know, and I'm getting kicked out of my motel. So I went over to the motel, Kathy and I, and we paid for several nights. Went and got her some food and stuff. And then I go to the motel and I'm talking to the motel clerk. And, you know, what's going on? Oh, her boyfriend's still back there. She's just scamming every church she can get. You know, and I'm like, and, and that's okay because my, my p- position is I would rather err on the side of love. I don't know. This is a need. I'm going to help you out. Okay, it might have been an error on my part. About a year later, a couple years, a bunch of us guys were sitting here having a meeting in church, and she comes walking in. And she, you know, and I'm like, how's the cancer? How's your boy? Oh, she was kind of startled that, oh my word, you remembered me. Yes, I remembered you. You know, and, you know, just keep trying to scam. So it's, it's easy to get callous. You know, when you see those people, and some people just, well, I'm going to give them money because I don't know. I mean, see, have you seen all these news reports where they follow these people? And they leave that corner and they walk two blocks and they get in their Mercedes and they drive home to this beautiful... You know, they make a lot of money on that corner. But again, we, yeah, we have tax-free money. We have to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be callous. So when someone really has a need, we, you know, we're just not turning our... Our bowels of compassion are shut off to them. But again, well, he's talking specifically here about your brothers. Okay, yes. so it's you know it's it, it's the brothers and the needs of the brothers. But you know we also to help you know first he says help the family God, but we can go beyond that. But it, it it's difficult in this culture. Because the government takes care of everybody by handing out money to people who don't want to work. You know, again, I don't want to get on this, you know, we talked about this last week. But the government steals from my pocket and gives to somebody that doesn't want to work. How is that right? And so, yeah, we, we're going to help you. Government's already helping you. It's just, it's difficult. This is a different culture. 
And, but, you know, we have to make sure we don't get callous. 